Good morning, saints of our Lord, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Brady Finnern, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for tuning us in this morning on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. A blessed epiphany season this Friday, January the 28th, as God's light in Christ shines on us from Matthew chapter 13. We are now knee-deep into the parables, explaining these parables. Actually, you know what? Proclaiming these parables. Because we studied the parable of the sower, now we will have a closer look of Jesus. Yes, we did go through that yesterday with Pastor Bob Hiller, but we'll dig even a little more deeper as we look also about hearing the, the, about the parable of the weeds. Like I said, I don't want to get too far into the weeds, but today we will have to. Usually anything concerning weeds is not a good thing. We'll find out what it more means for us and what it means for the kingdom of God for we come together to see Jesus. For the gifts are ready, ready for you. Thank you to our friends at Lutheran Heritage Foundation for their support of Thy Strong Word. Visit lhfmissions.org for more information lhfmissions.org. Joining us to be strengthened by God's word, we welcome back Pastor Brian Stecker of Trinity Lutheran Church and School in Waconia, Minnesota. Pastor Stecker, welcome back to Thy Strong Word. Yeah, it's good to be back. Thanks for having me. Pastor Stecker, you you, you were kind of my, uh, uh, not my, our New Hampshire representative, but now you're in the, a resident of the great state of Minnesota. So something's changed. Tell us about the changes and what's new for you and your family. Yeah, it's tough to find a place that's further north than New Hampshire, but we did it. <laughs> I, think, uh, I think it's negative degrees today. So it is. It is. It went from, uh, from cold to colder, but um, we will always certainly have a place for New Hampshire in our heart. We, we loved it out there. New England is beautiful. The people are great. Um, so we really enjoyed our time there, but we, we did receive a call here to Trinity and it was um, uh, kind of a long process, a handful of interviews spread out over a couple of months. Um, I know you've been through the process as well and God, God made it clear. He was bringing us out here um, through a, kind of a mosaic of a picture, a lot of little, little things that just seem to have God's fingerprints on it. So we, we finished out at Grace Lutheran in Nashua, New Hampshire. Uh, Christmas, the day after Christmas was my final service. So I went through the Christmas weekend and then we moved out over the new year and we've just begun our, uh, our time here. So getting acquainted to Minnesota, it's a beautiful area as well. And uh, we're excited for what God has in store here and uh, for, for great back in Nashville. And I tell you what, Pastor, when we meet up, which hopefully will be soon, I have a book here that I'm going to lend. Actually, I'm going to give it to you because it's more important for you. I grew up in Minnesota, so I know it. And it's called How to Talk Minnesotan. It will give you everything you need to know. I've used it here in the program numerous times. And uh, I actually have more than one of them. So I'm going to send you one. Um, it, for example, in Minnesota, you have to refuse food at least three times before accepting it. Because when you do that, you don't look like you're needy. And you don't want to, you don't want to cause a problem for somebody else which is why you wait three times and then you can have the food. So if, you know, if you go to someone's house and they offer you dessert, you first say no. And they say, how about this? Well, maybe no. And the third time, that's when it's safe to accept food in the state of Minnesota. So now, you know, pastor about how to talk Minnesotan. What do you think? You know, those are, those are very important things to know. <laughs> Cause coming, <laughs> coming from New England uh, and especially the close to the Boston area, they speak very different and, um, yeah, I, I definitely need to make sure my vocabulary and way of speaking is aligned to the local 
local region. Well, we will continue uh, to pray for you, but also to uh, teach you. And that's what today is about. Jesus is teaching his people, and we dig into the scriptures and see him. So, Pastor, can you begin our time in prayer? Yes, let us pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word so that we may continue to walk the path that you have led us by your by your spirit and always defined by your grace and love. Please help your spirit to enlighten our minds as we study your word and um, internalize what it means for us and what it means for our relationship with you. Help all of this always to shine glory on you and on your church and on your work. And uh, we thank you for giving us the opportunity to learn your divine truth. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you have any questions concerning Matthew chapter 13, really, this is the chapter of parables. And so we're going to talk much about that. So if you have any questions about parables, any thoughts, send us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org. So, Pastor, we're going to begin from the English Standard Version, reading all of our verses we have assigned for today. Reminder to our listeners that it's a little bit clunky, and I fully admit this, that when I assigned these verses, there was no good way to do it. So today we will hear the parable of the sower explained, which Pastor Hiller and I went through yesterday. And then we will go through the parable of the weeds, which also has, you know, explanation a little bit later than our assigned reading. So be patient with us because on Monday, Pastor uh, Reverend Dr. Phil Boo will go through that explanation, but we also will be covering it today. So I just invite you, this is our opportunity to slowly go through God's word, because as I heard someone say very well, that there's no, there's no verse in the Bible that we throw out. So everyone has purpose and every one verse and every word is true. So we hear those words today, beginning in verse 18 and going through verse 30. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root for in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does this have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No. Less in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. This is the word of the Lord. Pastor, as we hear this, we hear of two parables, one explained, one that is introduced. Tell us, let's go back to basics. What is a parable? 
Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, one I've actually had a lot of interest in, and I think we, we, probably it's best to look at it from a couple different angles, kind of like a sphere. And the first angle, um, I think, was covered a little bit yesterday, so I won't elaborate too much on it. But it is interesting that Jesus is that kind of that same question, right? That the disciples in verse ten say, "Why do you speak to the people in parables?" And then Jesus replies, and you know, basically says, you know, so that those who are are, are wise in the world so that they may not understand it, but so that you who I've called that you may understand it. Um, and it seems that it seems that when we approach God's word or uh, when the people approach Jesus, if they're going to approach him with pride, you know, maybe as like the Athenians who are going to, you know, approach it with their worldly wisdom and just look at it as another, maybe um, another approach to wisdom of the world. If you're going to do this, you're going to miss what Jesus is trying to say. Or rather, if you approach it with with faith, as the disciples do, then it opens up just a whole, uh, you know, a whole room, a whole—I guess you could say—a whole sanctuary of of wisdom packed into these these very short parables. Um, so, it, you know, one one analogy that's helped me. Um, I like to golf, like most people. You know, I say I like to golf, but I'm not good at golf. Um, but for those who golf, if we said, "Hey, here's somebody I want you to to go and train with." You know, they're going to teach you the way of golf. There's something about golf that just goes counterintuitive to the way your mind and body normally work. So most people, when they pick up a golf club and they start swinging, things don't go well. Car windows get broken, people get hurt, things like that. Um, so if I were to say, hey, you know, go, go follow golf, and you didn't believe that the person who was going to train you actually knew what they were talking about, you would probably second guess everything they tell you. And you'd say, no, 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 I'm going to swing it more like a baseball bat because I want it to go far, et cetera. And the whole thing would crumble and fall apart. Um, the only way you're going to get it good at golf is if you first trust the teacher, kind of submit to the teacher, and then you will learn as you go. And, and it's the same kind of way with Jesus, where it's those who put their faith in Jesus, approach him in humility, and approach these parables that he's saying in that same way. It's them that receive divine wisdom. Um, and it's those that look at the, at the stories in, in worldly terms that miss the whole point and they think of them as either simple stories or not holding anything profound. So the parable in one way, the first way is it kind of divides the hearers. Those who approach it with pride, they're going to miss it. Those who approach it with faith, um, just a world of understanding. And so as you look at this, that's very, I mean, that really interprets everything we have to say in verses 10 through 17, because what's, you know, they're like, why do you speak to them in parables? And they're like, why don't you just give it to us straight? And it definitely is exactly what he's saying is that he speaks this and then you're able to see who trusts in him and who doesn't. Um, and there's a certain amount that I spoke about yesterday where I love parables and I love how you're talking about it because that kind of gives me a little bit of a, a different uh, aspect of how to look at them. But there is a reality that those who are in faith kind of lean in to understand parables a little more, like you're like, well, that's interesting. Tell me more. And those who aren't interested, you know, kind of whatever, it doesn't matter. I'm not trying to call people's faith into question, but there definitely is something to the parables that hits the brain a little bit differently. At the same time, it leads people in faith to ask questions like, tell me more. You know, there's parts of scripture where they're not asking for more. They're like, oh my gosh, what's going on? But parables tend to do that. Any thoughts? Mm -hmm. Well, well said, yeah. So, Pastor, yeah. go ahead. Keep going. 
Oh, I think it's a, yeah, what you're saying there, I think even it leads right into, I think, the second point, which is the one that I've always been very interested in, which is just the, what, the power of story. And I remember we took a, took a class. It was with uh, Professor Busher um, there at the Fort Wayne Seminary. And it was one of those classes. He, he was very, uh, he studied the church fathers first, you know, five, six centuries. And that was kind of his specialty. And he talked about the way that they really focused in and appreciated the, the teaching that takes place in story, you know, which Jesus does here in the parables. But there's something about the story that, that it sits in you like a seed and it grows throughout your life. I remember I had a, a friend at seminary who grew up in a kind of a unique situation. It was a very close community. So most of the people that he grew up with you know, worked within the same company or companies, lived within the same neighborhood, went to the same church, thing like that. It was a very interesting situation. But he talked about, um, it was the book by C.S. Lewis. Um, I'm drawing about Still We Have Faces, mm. which was C.S. Lewis's um, approach at doing the myth. So he kind of created his own myth, but brought in a lot of Christian components to it. But it was a grand story. And he said that everyone in the community read this book. And what happened was over the years, they would refer to that story in various situations. So much like the way that the memes are used now where, you know, you find people in conversation describing a meme to kind of articulate what they're, what they're thinking. It was the same way where the story just took root within their individual lives and then the community life. And you just find that in every step of life, that story turns over a new leaf and has a new teaching. So stories have that way where they take on a life of their own in a way that, um, you know, just a simple truth statement, right, doesn't necessarily. Um, so the stories are just a very profound way of taking a truth, placing it in your life, and watching it grow and apply, be applied to different situations. So I think these parables are ones that are very much, it's, we're supposed to internalize these stories so that we continually reflect on them. It's not something that, you know, we can have a 45 minute conversation about and say, well, you know, we took care of that parable, so we don't need to deal with that for another three years. Right. We, we internalize them and they, they interact with our daily, uh, with our daily lives. And yeah, there's boy. Yeah. And they're very important for, I would say pastoral care situations. And then also for, um, the church to understand. And I would say this is, part of what we talked about yesterday, that many ways the parable of the sower and the parable of the weeds would be loosely um, defined as a kingdom parable. This is how God's kingdom works. And, and he uses a story to unpack that. That's how Bob Hiller spoke about it. I've heard different ways of speaking about it, but how would you, if you were to put these two parables into a category, how would you describe it? Hmm. Maybe you don't have yeah, one, like, that's fine. Yeah, I don't know if I have a, a, I like the kingdom parable that you, that you mentioned. I think that would summarize it. Well, I think they definitely interact with each other. Um, well, yeah, one, one person, I don't know if this is kind of a short category, but um, another professor from seminary, Dave Scare, um, writes a lot on this. And what he does, this has helped me with these parables, and really this whole section of parables, kind of the end of chapter 12 through 13. Um, he says that he kind of frames the book of Matthew as it being meant for catechumen or those who in the early church are learning about the Christian faith. They're coming from either, you know, a Jewish background, maybe a pagan background, and they're trying to understand what the faith is, and Matthew is bringing them through. And what Scare will say is that all of these things are rooted back in um, the Sermon on the Mount. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is putting forth kind of these, 
these motifs or these main points that he's going to then, um, uh, that you're going to be play out then through the rest of the book. So, you know, here we, we can picture these young catechumens and we can plug right into that very easy because we are, of course, catechumens of the faith and we're learning the faith. Um, and they're getting to these stories and they're seeing in them um, some good explanations of their journey from faith beginning all the way to the final judgment. And in, especially in these two, we get some good explanation as to why some people who started this journey are falling away. Um, so for them, they would have had these groups of catechumens and throughout the year that they would have been studying, many of them would have fallen away from the faith. And these, um, these parables really give, um, they give story and they give a lot of good explanation as to why these things happen. And of course we can relate to that very well because as we grow up in our life, if we grow up as Christians or maybe we're people that come to the faith later in life, we watch people, maybe people that we really respect and looked up to, maybe fathers of the faith to ourselves. And we went and watched some of them fall away and we said, well, why did that happen? And that's where these stories then that take root in our life help give context and understanding to this. As, as I've, I've heard it said, it's, it's like Jesus doesn't give us the whole reason why these things happen, but he gives us a few breadcrumbs to explain that it does happen. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I, to me, that's a good segue for us to start digging in. But do you have anything else you wanted to highlight before we start? No, I don't think so. I'm excited to break down the text. And um, great. Yeah, the conversation about parables is always very interesting. It always is fun. So let's get ready. Here we go. Matthew 13, beginning in verse 18. Um, so we're just going to kind of go through each section little by little here. Verses 18 and 19. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. Now, Pastor, I think this really relates with what you're saying. We've all grown up. I mean, not all. Many of us have grown up in the church. We've been part of the church. And we have people that were like, man, that, that guy, that gal, I mean, they are faithful people. And all of a sudden, they stop coming. Sometimes I've had a dear friend that I went to college with, one that taught me a lot about the faith, has now publicly said he's denied it all. So what's happening? How does Jesus kind of break that down to say, um, uh, not, I guess not really necessarily why, but here's what's going on. Yeah, I think, I think the, the real important thing that Jesus does here is he, he brings us back, you know, to the Sermon on the Mount where he says things like, you know, you cannot serve two masters, right? And, and either you're going to serve the Lord or in the end, you're going to end up serving the prince of the world, which is Satan. And of course, he's going to tell us that that's the, the evil one is the one who comes and snatches it away. You know, and, and when he teaches us the Lord's Prayer, how does he finish the Lord's Prayer? It says, deliver us from evil, or you can translate it, deliver us from the evil one. Both, you know, articulate the same thing. So there's this, there's this battle going on where, um, you know, elsewhere, Jesus talks about the strong man, right? So, you know, Jesus ends up doing all these miracles, and the, um, the Jewish leaders come to him, and they say, well, how is he doing these miracles? How is he casting out demons? They say, well, maybe he's casting out a demon because he is a demon. <laughs> and then, you know, Jesus looks and says, well, you know, a house divided is going to fall. And then he gives uh, that wonderful parable where he talks about the strong man. And he says, well, a stronger man must come into the house. Find up that strong man. He's referring to Satan in order to take what it is. And, uh, you know, that's Jesus saying, that's why I've come. I've come to find up. You're not the real enemy here. You know, Jewish leaders, you're standing in my way right now, but I've come 
to, I've, I've come to stand against the evil one. I've come back to take the pearls that I, I've come to claim, you know, the lives of those who have written in the book of life and watch the way that I do that. So you do see that there's this uh, kind of cosmic battle between, you know, Jesus, you know, the son of God, who of course is going to be victorious, um, but the evil one who is still working. And here we see that he's going to still be working in our lives. And we're going to see the fruits of that. If you said, you know, Hey, here's this person who I respected in the faith. And why did they go away? Um, why did they leave the faith? And, and one read that it's the evil one is working against him. You know, and we have to always have to keep that within the context here, that there's an enemy, which is why we pray, Lord, deliver us from the evil one. You know, we pray that daily. And, and this goes back to the Lord's prayer, you know, deliver us, uh, you know, uh, from temptation, deliver us from the evil. And, and this is why we continually pray it is because we don't necessarily see the devil at work, but we know that he is. And, and it doesn't tell us exactly why things play out the way they do, but it does admit that there is indeed brokenness behind us and around us and surrounding us and why we need light in the midst of darkness and everything else in our lives. And he, he speaks, this does bring us back to the beginning where you have Jesus, the not such a good farmer in worldly terms, because he's throwing the seed absolutely everywhere. You know, it's like, it's like, it's like taking the seed and throwing it on the road and saying, oh, maybe this will bear fruit now. And everyone else is like, this guy's crazy. But it shows the, the, the reality of Jesus throwing his seed everywhere because of his grace is for everyone. And, and here we see the darkness that still is there. Any, any thoughts on that as we kind of look back on the, on the parable that we read at the beginning of 13? Yeah, I think that's definitely going to tie in. I, I hope it tie that in. I'll try to remember it. I'll tie that in, but it, it brings in too kind of the, um, the parable of the weeds when we get into the second one and still, you know, there's this where, where, where God is, it's working so hard for even those weeds to turn back into wheat. Right. So he's, he's very graceful in the same way that, you know, he's willing to spread the seed far and wide on all these different places. Um, and, and maybe one last thing, maybe before we move on to that, to the next, um, to the rocky ground, um, but it is interesting. You can think of the catechumens, you know, when at the time that Matthew was writing, you know, at a time where there's, there's much more persecution than you or I would certainly face. And you can, you can see Christ is warning them of apostasy throughout this, right? He's warning them of the fact that, that the evil ones at work, he's going to try to pull you away from the faith. And the goal here through the book of Matthew is of course, to give you the full gospel narrative of who Christ is in order to keep you from being matched up by the evil one, right? To help you stay awake, right? As he, I think he ends the um, this section with, you know, with the um, um, with the wedding and the uh, uh, the bridesmaids, right? The young virgins who, you know, fall asleep and miss the whole wedding banquet, right? So he's giving them this warning of, of stand firm in what it is that I'm teaching you. And by standing firm in faith to what I'm teaching you, you will be protected from the evil one. So let's go to the next section. Uh, to the rocky ground. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises, on account of the word, immediately he falls away. I think we all can, um, we can relate with that. I mean, this is a very relatable part where I know for me in ministry and in life, 
you'll see someone come and they are on fire. Maybe they get baptized. Maybe they have been in the church forever. They're here for a month, maybe two months, even a year, maybe even longer. And all of a sudden they once again disappear. Your thoughts. Yeah. And you can see, I mean, there's, there's always trouble and there's always reasons and there's always fears that rise up that are, that are trying to pull us away from the church. And I think it's always interesting that when we look at the, the fears that drive other people away from the church, you know, and, the, and this, maybe the stories we hear, especially like in the gospel narratives, like maybe the rich man, and we look and we say, how could you miss it? Right. Rich man, how, how, how could you leave Jesus? How could you, um, you know, cling to your wealth? Um, which I guess is more, more so the next one, but still. Then, though, there are things that come into our life that cause us fear, you know, and, and, and maybe there's persecution that comes into our life. And as soon as we taste it, I think our first knack is we miss, we, we, have, we have all these excuses, kind of a web of excuses built up as to why our fear or the persecution that we face, why that justifies probably slowly walking away from the faith. But it's, it is interesting to just see that difference. We can see it very clearly in other people, but we miss it often when those things creep into our lives. So I think this is this is one to always have on, on the forefront of our mind because it does tie in even the way we describe the first commandment, right? We say we should fear, love, and trust in God. And I think that fear one is, is particularly important. Um, I think sometimes we might just say, oh, well, fear is just another word for respect. And there's certainly that aspect to it where you respect God and all of that. And that's a really good teaching. But there's also a fear component to where, you know, God brought us into this world. Um, he's the creator of worlds. He's the overthrower of Satan. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And there is an aspect of fear. And the way that embodies itself in a very important way is kings uh, have always understood this. Leaders and nations have always understood this, that if you can inflict fear on people, they will do what you want them to do. They will they will serve you because of the fear. You know, the Assyrians were especially um, big in this when they took over the northern kingdom. You know, and the way they took over kingdoms, once they did, they inflicted um, a lot of damage and a lot of fear in the people so that they would never uprise, so that they would never go against their will. So that word, we should fear God above all things, means when there's other things that cause fear in our life, we can't let those things control our narrative. We can't let those control the decisions that we make and control who we worship or who we cease to worship. And here we see that when, uh, for this group, um, people, they, they rise up with joy, they receive the seed, they're, um, they're excited to worship God, but it lasts only for a short time because as soon as persecution, as soon as challenges come in or that fear might set in, um, they're very quickly to no longer worship God, but worship other things. And it may, you know, there's a whole list of things that that could be, of course. I want to get more to that and continue to flow through this parable explained by our Lord Jesus. But we need to take our break. We are studying Matthew chapter 13 with Pastor Brian Stecker, and we will be right back. This is the voice of a mother in the faraway country of Georgia reading to her six-month-old son about Jesus from a Bible storybook written in the Georgian language. The child's Bible was given to her by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, and the Holy Spirit is working powerfully through your support of LHF to make events like these happen every day. Help another family learn of the Savior. Learn how at lhfmissions.org. 
And welcome back. We are studying Matthew chapter 13 with Pastor Brian Stecker of Trinity Lutheran Church and School in Waconia, Minnesota. Now, Pastor, I'm going to give you a little bit of a precursor again to this great book, How to Talk Minnesotan, because by the end of you reading this, and and hopefully maybe you have a little uh, uh, book club with your members at your congregation, that you will be able to determine the difference when a Minnesotan says, that's not a bad deal. And when they say, well, that's one heck of a deal. So when your people say that on Sunday morning or they ask you, you know, how much did you buy your house for? How much was your soda that you bought this morning, your coffee? And you'll say, well, whatever the price is. And they say, that's one heck of a deal. Now you will know what that means. What do you think? What what does that mean? Does that mean I got a good deal? <laughs> One heck of a deal means that even a Norwegian Minnesotan is excited. That's what that means. That's a good deal. Yeah. So just so you know. <laughs> Anyways, I, I'm repumping this book up. That I mean, I, should, I, I probably should get some money out of the promotions that we give in this thing. Anyways, um, Pastor, like you said, it really brings us to that reality that we live in a broken world and that there is an enemy. And that enemy wants us to always doubt the grace and mercy and providence of our Lord. So we grieve when people walk away, but in a certain sense, there's a comfort. I don't know how to exactly say this. There's an assurance that when we are as Christians preaching and teaching and that we are serving the best that we can, um, we always are needing to repent, but at the same time, we see this happen. So we shouldn't be surprised because we know there is an enemy, but yet we still grieve. Um, any, any thoughts on how this is kind of I, I, strangely comforting to know that this is nothing new? Any thoughts? Yeah, I think one of, maybe one of the best comforts goes back to when, you know, when he, he's asked, why do you speak in parables, right? And if we're here listening and studying the parables, we're certainly not that group that Jesus is speaking about who are going to approach his teachings that approach his parables and approach it with arrogance and kind of quickly walk away. Right. So, you know, if you look at this and you say, well, well, I'm not sure if I fully understand the parables, you know, what, what if that means that, you know, that I'm closing my mind to it? Well, well, certainly none of us understand the parables to its full completion. It takes a whole lifetime of internalizing these things. And like I said, early on, like it continues to grow year after year, you will always learn and understand these parables more as your life goes on. So it's not that you're expected to understand these things fully, but if you're coming back to these parables, right? If you're there in church hearing God's word, um, if you're listening to, um, if you're listening to Brady here, if they explain this on a daily basis or, you know, whenever you tune in, you are certainly those whom God has called, who he's giving these parables to, to bring you comfort and to help you grow in your faith. And it doesn't happen overnight, but it does happen um, throughout your life. So it's one of these things we can say as we're studying these, we are assured that these are gospel words to us. So we continue in verse 22. As for what was sown among thorns, this is one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. This is a, I mean, the, the vision of this is very clear. I remember as a kid, we would run around and we had a lot of, uh, fields that had no, uh, no houses, no, uh, they didn't, weren't growing anything in it. So you say it's weeds and you always had the thistles and thorns that you would run through. And when you saw it, you felt it. And whenever those would take over 
a certain area, they took over. They just didn't have one small one. It would take over. So I think it's a great visual for us to, to think about our faith because sometimes we do feel alone and as if there's thorns surrounding us at every, every channel. And what does he tell us about that? So are the thorns, is, is it something that's uh, pretty prominent here in Minnesota? Yeah, watch out. Yeah, if you go out into an open field, they're out in the wilderness. Yeah, they're there. So wear, wear your sweatpants or whatever it might be sometimes when it's 90 degrees out even, because you never know. Yeah, that, that's good to know. We had a lot of ticks <laughs> in New Hampshire, but not too many thorns. So. There you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, yeah, you know, so we've got the, the thorns choking it out. The you know, Jesus attaches those to the worries of life and the deceitfulness of of wealth. Um, in particular, I find that one interesting. Well, once again, I think Jesus is bringing us back to um, the Sermon on the Mount. You know, and, and here we can go back to where he he spends you know some good time talking about earthly treasures, right? And how earthly treasures waste away; they have no long-lasting value in comparison to what it is that Jesus has come to bring. And then he goes on to say, in I think chapter 6, right around verse 20-ish, you know, that, that you cannot serve both God and money, mm-hmm. right? If you're going to serve money, um, that is going to end up taking the place of God. And um, that's always, you know, whenever we talk about tithing within the church or whatnot, especially like in a new member class when you might have someone who is hearing maybe that for the first time, you know, giving your giving a portion of your money to the church and to the work of the kingdom. And sometimes that idea sounds, sounds foreign to people. And the way I always describe it is this is actually a gift that God has given to us, that Christ has given to us, because uh, money will, oh, it will always become a deep love that your heart strives after. And if it's left unchecked, um, whether you are poor or become very wealthy like the rich man, um, it will begin to consume you. So built into the Christian faith, Christ says, hey, give, give 10% of what you make and give it to God's kingdom. And in doing so, practically, it helps keep that very dangerous idol at bay. Um, because when you do serve money, it, you know, it consumes and takes over so many other things in your life, including your faith. So um, there's a danger there, the deceitfulness of wealth. Um, but Christ says, hey, I'm bringing treasures that do not waste away like the money of this world. I'm giving you things that are much better. And you will see that. Um, and actually, it will begin to give you a appropriate approach to money and to wealth. Um, one that's healthy, where you can enjoy the gift of money and the things that it buys, but in a way that it doesn't consume and overtake you. And that's very helpful as we continue to look at stewardship, that it's stewardship and, and giving and generosity is not just for the needs of those who receive, but also for the giver to give. And then that's a very helpful distinction that you make and reminds us how quickly, I mean, just think about that, how you can use your money to the glory of God and how quickly it can be a thorn in your side, as Paul would say too, a thorn in the flesh and how we need to continually keep it in the context of which God has given it to us as a gift. Pastor, anything else you want to say before we get to these last few verses of the parable of the sower? One, one real quick, and it's, it's an interesting analogy, but it, it's popping into my mind that it really does apply here. And it goes back to Second Maccabees, which is one of the books there from the Apocrypha. It's that period in between kind of the, um, the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. It's when um, the Jewish people were dealing with uh, the Greeks who treated them very fiercely. And then there was the Maccab- 
Maccabean um, uprising and, and such. But there's a, a chapter in there. I, th- I think it's Second Maccabees seven. My internet has been kind of spotty, so I don't want to mess with it and lose the text in front of me. <laughs> but it, I think it's Second Maccabees seven, and it's the story of um, the mother and the seven sons. And long story short, what happens is Epiphanes, who's kind of the evil Greek emperor, he comes into one of the Jewish towns, and he wants the Jewish people to give up their faith and to serve him, right? So he's, he's really trying to do um, what Jesus is talking about, the evil one tries to do in the parables. He's doing the exact same thing. And the way he's going to do it in his mind is he's going to take this family of seven prominent men in the community, seven sons, seven brothers, and he's going to get them to apostatize, right, and to abandon the, the ways of the Jewish people and, and end up serving him. So for the first six, he threatens them with death, right? So kind of the, the rocky soil analogy there. And each one stands firm. And basically, they kind of actually taunt him each time. So it's really backfiring. But he does put each of them to death, and it's not in a way that I would like to die. Um, but they each stand firm. And then he gets to the seventh son. So then he goes to the mother, and, um, and he tries to get the mother to convince the youngest son to um, give up his faith. And then he goes to the youngest son, and he says, not only will I not kill you, but also I will give you great wealth, and I'll bring you up to a place of prestige within my kingdom. So he kind of combines um, what Jesus is talking here, both about the rocky soil and then about the thorns. He, he tries to tempt the young boy in both of these ways. Um, but the mother goes to the son and says, son, I don't know how you came to be. Obviously it was the will of God. And therefore, if it's the will of God, let us not abandon him, but let's hold firm in your faith for he will give you, you know, treasure that is beyond any treasure of this world. And the youngest son does hold firm to his faith and he does lose his life. So it's, it's a very bittersweet story in that it's a great tragedy that happened to this family. But through the faith of those young boys, they stood strong against the temptations of the evil one, which was being embodied in Epiphanes, the uh, emperor there of the, the Greeks at the time. But it really kind of brings us then into the this next section, which maybe we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. But the story of those young boys did, in fact, produce a crop yielding hundreds, if not more. Right? Their story um, really empowered not only that community, but all of the Jewish people to stand firm in their faith and stand against um, the Greeks at the time, and they did have some um, some victories because of that. And then the story is carried carried forward for two thousand years, and you know, it inspires me, and maybe it inspires you. So you can see by resisting those temptations of the evil one, um, it does in fact produce a crop yielding one hundred sixty thirty times more in ways that I'm sure they could not possibly have understood when they were standing against the temptations at that time. Yeah, they literally are, and uh, literally are in thorns and thistles. Um, and yet, you know, the Lord brought them to good soil might be the way we want to describe it. And I, I would say this is a first for us here on Thy Strong Word during my tenure, at least, that we have referenced the Apocrypha. So <laughs> I just that's a, that's a new one. So thank you for that, Pastor. And it's a great way for us to look at history, um, the Apocrypha, and to look at it appropriately. And you, and you did it great. If you have any questions about the Apocrypha, look it up and CPH has a number of resources on that for us to use it appropriately and for us to be able to lose it, use it for God's glory. And like you said, uh, God's word does not come back void. This is Isaiah 55. It's going to not return empty and he's going to use it for his purpose and it will bear fruit, not always in the way we predict it, but the way that God will, which leads us to 23. 
As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case, hundredfold, another 60, and another 30. Here, this is the part I like, you know, Pastor. This is the part that I want to hear more of, of the good soil. And then my tendency, and this is the danger in this, I think, my tendency is to say, okay, how can I get this good soil? Is it an equation? I do this, I do this, I do this. Um, or what is Jesus telling us about the good soil here today? Yeah, and I think the way that he, the way that he speaks about this, he does it in such a way that it should never leave you say, am I the good soil, right? He, he gives you that assurance. You know, it's kind of like when people come and they say, I'm trying to figure out, you know, if I'm a Christian. And usually when they're saying that, they're saying, hey, you know, I struggle with you know, all these things in my life and I've got the, the vision and the self-reflection to see these things. And, you know, does that mean I'm not a good Christian? And of course we would say that Lutherans and as Christians, um, the Christian life is not one about you being, you know, a Christian hero that uh, you know, doesn't struggle with these things, but someone that acknowledges that you do struggle with these things and you live a life of repentance coming back to God and saying, here are my shortcomings, here are my sins, here are my downfalls but I bring them before you and I want to hear your word of grace and I want to understand more about you so I can, you know, uh, our relationship can grow, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so here, you know, he says about the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who first hears the word and understands it. And that word understands doesn't mean that he's mastered it, right? Like he's got a, a PhD in the word of God and therefore, um, you know, he's, he, he can close the book and that figured it all out. Right. But it's someone who, who first, hears it and he's you could say he's striving towards it and if they're and the best way to say do i understand it is do you believe that jesus christ is the son of god who died for your sins and your sins in particular which means that he is now your lord and savior and he has prepared a place for you in heaven and if you can say that and say amen to that statement you are someone who hears the word and you are someone who understands it now continue to hear the word and continue to cling to that um, and you are good soil and God will continue to work in you, um, through the things that he set up through the means of grace, through his work, through his church, through his community, through the ways that he wants to come and bless you. And you will be surprised. He's saying here then what I will do through you, right? Just like the analysis, just like the seven sons, they weren't thinking, Hey, I'm going to impact the world through this, but they did, right? You can think of the 12 disciples, um, you know, wayward as they were, Christ chose them, blessed them, called them, and through them, you know, all of us are Christians, right? Through the through the apostles who have written down these words and brought us um, the gospels and, and the words of Christ, through them we have God has worked faith in all of us. So um, you can see what God works through those who hear His word and and cling to it. And for that, it it. You know, it, it's much like when Jesus went and found the the, the one lamb and left the ninety nine. That I, I not too much of a comparison, but in this way, that there was more celebration. You know, that that this was this lamb had been found, and for us, when that good soil is there, and we see people in faith bearing fruit, we should just. Be giving thanks to God, not looking at them as an equation like, okay, so what did you do so that I can do this again? Or, or to think about, okay, you know, what motivates you or what's your passion? And, but to simply give thanks to the Lord 
which I think, Pastor, this is one of the humbling things for me, is that when I show up on Sunday morning and I, and I, and I stand there at like, we start at nine o'clock at 8.30, there's nobody else there but me, maybe 8.15. And then by nine o'clock, people have come to receive the gifts and they're bearing fruit in faith. To me, that's an amazing thing and very much so proves that what Jesus says in 23 is true then and is still true today. What are your thoughts? Yeah, amen. Oh, <laughs> yeah, to your, your point, it continues on, right? So those people that are there, if you ask them, you know, why are you they there? And, you know, because of God, of course, but God is, of course, worked through me. And someone might say, well, my parents, you know, they, you know, I saw my father praying in the morning and, you know, he brought me to church and, you know, maybe my grandparents and, you know, I had a friend that walked beside me during a difficult time or maybe a pastor was there, you know, and I lost a friend, whatever, whatever those are, God works through those means. And then those people who are there at, you know, maybe 8.50 on a, on a Sunday morning and they come in and, and they're there to hear God's word. God is working through them to reach people as well. Probably, it, probably in ways that they don't even realize. Right. Oh, my goodness. Yes, absolutely. Well, we could talk about that a long time, but this is kind of weird to say, but I want to get to the weeds. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just going to read the rest of this because we have just under 10 minutes and I want to make sure we give ample time to get broad overviews of this parable. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together and tell the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers. Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, a reminder to you, our listeners, and as we study this, the explanation from Jesus is from Matthew 13, verses 36 through 43. So as we look at this, this is a good, you know, if you have the Lutheran Study Bible, you literally have to go back and forth, as you hear me doing right here, to kind of get a reference point to it. But Pastor, how do you want to begin as we look at both this and the explanation? Yeah, so um, I guess maybe, maybe the quick trend that, Position. One of the, I thought it'd be very interesting, especially with this one in particular. I wanted to look at some of the early church fathers and the way yeah. that they, yeah. uh, that they went with it. So I looked at, at two in particular, John Chrysostom and Augustine of Hippo. Both of them had servants on this. And then, uh, well, I'll, I'll put it this way. So at the beginning, they actually, for the most part, they, they agreed and, and many of the things that they, they drew from this, which was good. The only difference was Chrysostom, Look at this, what he said, hey, that, that previous parable that we were just looking at, the one of the sower, the parable of the weeds is built off of that, basically to say, so now you have this good soil, and the devil, the evil one, still works within the good soil to try to plant weeds, right? So in other words, to try to get people within the church um, to then do his will and to do false teachings and to influence people from within the church in a bad way, et cetera, et cetera. Christensen took it that way. Augustine took it a little bit differently and basically said that it was kind of a, a little bit of a retelling of the, the parable of the sower in a little bit of a different way. 
Um, both, it doesn't make a big impact, but I did find that interesting. So anyway, of course, what do you do if you have two that take it slightly differently? Well, you go to Professor David Scare. <laughs> what it is that he wrote it, he, he sided with criticism, um, actually. And he said that he felt that this was kind of a follow-up, you know, the next chapter as far as, so now you've got the good soil, but does that mean that the devil doesn't try to do anything with those, you know, who have the good soil, or you could say within the church? And the point is that the devil is going to always try to work within the church to sow weeds, right? And, and you can take that in a lot of different directions. But I think that sets us at least how these two go together, because there's kind of these string of parables that seem to at least have some interaction. Well, it really does. And, and to, to be able to connect those two, one, Jesus explains both of them. So there clearly was a connection that he was making as well, that these are closely interconnected. And also just plain logic, like you can say, oh yeah, that's great soil. Like um, if you ever end up pastor going to Northwest Iowa, I mean, it is as rich as it comes in the whole country where you will see miles and miles and miles of, of corn that basically no matter what the weather is, is green and wonderful and rich. And you know that you're feeding the world based upon that bread and butter area of America. Um, so, but even there, um, weeds will grow, you know, like you'll go through there and if they don't put that pesticide and all these other things in there, the weeds grow. If you ever are gardening, no matter how much you put into that ground, no matter how good the soil is, weeds appear, which is why we need to do weeding on this side of eternity. So it really hits the mind where you, you can connect with that. And we also see it in the church, no matter how perfectly you say it, that there still will be people who will deny that even if Jesus came, as we see all the time and preaches, people will still deny it. So I think it's very much so um, a very relatable connection between the two. So we talked about the parable of the weeds. Do you want to break that down for us a little bit? Um, other, other thoughts you had? Yeah. So um, I'm going to break it down here. So I, I think maybe one of the key verses is maybe I think it's verse 26. Da, 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 da. Yeah. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. Oh. Right. So it's, and I, I'm not a farmer. I'm not from Northern Iowa, so I can't confirm or deny. I mean, this is accurate um, as far as how actual farming goes, but it seems to be that the weeds are kind of hidden until um, until the wheat starts to sprout and form its heads. And another way to put it, both Chrysostom and Augustine took it this way, as far as, um, right, you will know a tree by its fruit. Yeah. And this is when the fruit starts to be shown, and that's when the weeds start to appear, right? So when, um, when that state has grown and now it's given root, um, that's when you start to see maybe you could say wolves in sheep's clothing, right? Um, and both Christensen and Augustine really, you could take this in a lot of different directions. You can talk about anyone here kind of within the church, but they really focus on pastors or leaders within the church, right? Because, of course, there are those who um, become pastors, and if that's the case, of course, you know, they have faith or maybe, you know, maybe they look like they have faith, but then you know, something happens and all of a sudden they start to maybe preach and teach things that are not of God's word or maybe go contrary to God's word. Um, and, and there's other destructive things that leaders within the church can certainly do. And you can see the damage that those things um, have. And um, so that's, the, that's kind of the way that they took it, um, which, of course, is as a starting point, just, a, you know, a good warning to always be aware of those things. You know, not everyone who 
says, you know, not everyone who says Jesus, Jesus actually has faith. And we always have to be careful that there are going to be those who are going to teach things contrary to the word of God, um, even though they may package it as if they are. And so as you look at this, it's very telling because it, it definitely brings us to the end when Jesus returns, um, that there's always going to be thorns and thistles and evil and the devil working. But at the end, what's going to happen? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's kind of the way that Jesus, um, you know, one, one other side of a parable I've, I've heard it said is parables will take standard stories, but put kind of a twist on it or, or, or do something that's a little bit over the top. And that's really where like the main lesson comes in. Um, and essentially you can see that the servants who in this case are going to be like the apostles, right. And, and the followers of Jesus there, they're ambitious, right. They say, you know, Hey, we, we saw these weeds, like, let's go take care of them. Yeah. Uh, the enemy did this. And then Jesus says, hold up, you know, let's, let's wait. Right. Um, basically at the, at the end in verse 30, right, the harvesters who are going to be the angels are first going to collect the wheat, um, tie them in bundles to have them burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into the barn. So in other words, you're going to let both of them grow up together. And, and the two main reasons it seems that that's the case that Jesus is uh, allowing this is one, there is an opportunity for weeds to become wheat. And God wants to allow those opportunities to take fruit, right? There are those who maybe go through patches or, of their life and, um, you know, they're, they're wheat. They are, they are not standing by the word of God. Um, but they may be so influenced by the wheat that they actually change and they repent and, and come back to crisis, um, as the Christian does. And then the second reason, um, being that, you know, if you're overly, overly zealous to try to be pulling up these weeds, you may actually harm a lot of wheat in the process, which you could see. I mean, if the disciples said, okay, I'm like, there might be weeds within our church. Let's go find them. You know, let's go and knock on doors and all this kind of stuff. You could just imagine the collateral damage that might take place. You know, you might take honest believers and, you know, start accusing them of things, um, almost like the witch trials there in Salem back in New England. Um, you know, so he's right to start with grace. I will take care of it and I will make all things right, you know. Um, and that doesn't mean you don't confront falsehood when there's falsehood. He does give that order to Peter where he says, you know, basically that if there's falsehood within the church, he needs to go deal with that. I think it's in I think Matthew 16 and 18. Sure. Um, but it, that that's a little bit different. That's more so with the authority of the church dealing with false teaching rather than uh, constantly being on the hunt for weed. Pastor, we have about a minute left in our time. How would you summarize and encourage our listeners based on the parables that we have studied today? Yeah, so I think the purpose of these parables, and certainly the purpose of what Matthew is doing here, is it to help those hearers who are on their journey of faith, and they're moving from wherever their faith began, and they're and they're moving and they're growing through their life, and of course they're always moving towards the final judgment. Um, you know, whether it's the end of this life or it's, it's Christ's second coming while you're still alive. Either way, that's what Matthew is trying to do. And that's what Jesus is doing here in the parables is he's teaching those who follow him, right? His goal with these parables, as we're hearing them, is not to bring us fear. It's not to constantly challenge us to say, well, are you really a Christian? But he's saying, hey, here's, you are a Christian. So 
embody and learn these things and um, internalize these things and grow with these things. And as you do, you will grow to more and more understand my grace, more and more understand my will, more and more understand why it is that I've come. Um, and all of these parables and uh, reference the um, Sermon on the Mount, everything is moving us towards the climax of the story, which is the death and resurrection of Christ. Um, and as long as you keep that as the focus, then these parables make more sense. If you say, the person who is teaching this is the same one who went and died for our sins and then conquered sin, death, and that evil one, the devil. Pastor Brian Stecker of Trinity Lutheran Church and School in Waconia, Minnesota, bringing us God's strong word from Matthew chapter 13. Pastor Stecker, thank you again for bringing his gifts. Hey, thank you, Brady. Christ's reign has come. Christ's reign is here. Christ's reign is coming. We keep seeing it over and over in Matthew chapter 13, and we'll continue to do this throughout the whole book. I'm your host, Brady Finneran, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of his hand.